Hey, it's Tia Carrer, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys. Double check. We are ready to launch. Wow. We are failure to launch with Matthew McConaughey and Sarah Jessica Parker, which I believe actually is the film that started That's... off my my love for Matthew. Oh right. I remember watching it with an ex. Thanks for bringing her up. And she she, she was like, oh, I want to watch this one. And on the cover, you know, you know, they're back to back shrugging, and she's tugging on his tie, and he's just oh, like yeah. shrugging his shoulders, like, oh, what can I do? I love him. And um. And I was watching it, I think it's, I guess, 2000 it would have been. And I was mm. watching it and I thought, oh, actually, this is just like really mildly charming. Now, I probably would watch it now and yeah. as like a 40-year-old man and think, oh, for God's sake. But at the time, I was expecting <laughs> such like saccharine nonsense. But because he is so genu- like genuinely charming, it kind of worked. And then, of course, uh, I watched more films of the men and I fancied him more and more and more. What was your first Matthew McConaughey film? My first Matthew McConaughey um Everybody remembers the first McConaughey. <laughs> I think it was Dazed and Confused, actually. Although he's quite a small part in it, but that is where... It, you I mean, sure your TV wasn't just quite far away from you? <laughs> the, the, that was the film where I'm pretty sure he, he did his All Right, All Right, All Right. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that that may have been the first one he did it because that was like 92. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so that was probably my first. And then after that would have been something like Contact... Where he had yeah. weirdly convincing chemistry with Jodie Foster, which is odd. <laughs> weirdly convincing chemistry. Let me just pop that as a possible title. <laughs> <laughs> mm. um, and let me say to you and to all the listeners, um, hello and welcome to Kino Kingdom 83. And a big thank you because we recently uh, passed 10,000 downloads. So that is 10,000 10, people saying, click, click. No, that wasn't for me. It says downloads, but I mean, do people download it? I thought people just streamed. Is, is, are know. they included in that? I don't know. I don't understand it, and nor do I have any intention of doing so. So, but okay. I'm just I'm just assuming that every episode there's ten thousand people slavering, slobbering at the lips to hear us talk about the last line of defence with Olivier Corner. <laughs> <laughs> ten thousand people about to get on a plane and thinking, oh no, I can't. I'm going to put it in airplane and quick download it. Well, I thought because this is the first uh, episode of 2024, <clears throat> um, we're recording this on the on the 4th of January. And happy New Year to you, Rupert, and to the listeners. Um, I thought we'd start off with a with a quiz. Um, right. one, one of my sort of Christmas gifts uh, was a very cool little like sort of it's like a little carry case thing. Right? It had two beers, a packet of cheese and onion crisps, and a film quiz in it and I thought well, that's fine though. I, I like all of those things um <clears throat> so I've got the questions yeah I haven't looked at them there's tw- 10 10 cards and there's two questions in each card and I've got them arranged in such a way that I can't see the answers so I can do this with you oh, instead excellent. of which is quite fun so have you got like a pen and paper or some way of keeping uh, count of our <laughs> that, can, uh, that, that can be arranged absolutely okay 
Let's get another fashions. You're gonna go and get one of those. I bet you sat there with like a like a My Little Pony like pony shaped notepad and like one of those rainbow pens. You can click down different colors. Yeah, with like yeah, like kind of feathers coming out the top. But yeah, uh, actually, um, weirdly, it's it is a believe it or not a Super Mario notebook. But I opened it up (laughs) and on the first page is um, some review notes for (laughs) Dazed and Confused, which I must have reviewed many years ago. That's Quite. I thought you were going to say. I thought you were, that, that's quite a coincidence. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, "Oh, actually, it's a Super Mario notebook, and I've opened it up. Oh, on the first page is my suicide note, and then, <laughs> and then just a gunshot, and then two hours of me going, hello, hello, yeah. not refusing yeah. to accept it, but also not being bothered by a third album." Um, what do you? I, I was thinking this right because when we when we record, I just wondered, what do you wear? I'm sitting here and I'm wearing a Punisher t-shirt. And boxes and socks, like a real man. What are you wearing? I am wearing a pair of jeans and a T-shirt from the Nintendo Store in New York. Not a T-shirt. Lo- not, not a T-shirt, a full Literally sock. Literally different, different <laughs> items. Yeah. All right. Um, okay, then, so are you ready to keep our score, which will hopefully be 20 out of 20? We do, we, we do like, run a film... Uh, podcast so we should be good at this. We get one or two right so how are we doing this are we gonna get take our own answers down or are we well i think we i, I was thinking we can answer to, i assume we'll get the right answer oh, so yeah. i'm saying we'll work together kind of thing okay, see if we can both do it so it's like a team quiz with just us um by the way this is a film and tv quiz so the savala session here as well i can't okay. edit that out without going through the questions so there could be some questions about I don't know, like neighbors near or something okay so feel free to play along I, at home I as well tv since rent <laughs> I haven't watched it. <laughs> I haven't watched TV since Andy Pandy was on, so you're you're ahead of me. Um, Weird born. Yeah, the the, the moment the moment anything went into color, it's like ah, oh, they sold out. Click, sell on the telly. Exactly. Um, so are you ready, Rupert? Yes. Oh well, this is a quiz. We've got we should come up with like a funny. And t- what's our team name? Uh. uh the. Suicidal critics. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Okay, question one. It was Beauty Killed the Beast. From which iconic movie does this quote come? I think I know this. I know this. Is it? Uh, is it? I'm going to guess King Kong. You are correct. It's because I remember being extremely irritated by Jack Black's delivery of that line. Yes, it, it was almost like I was expecting to like glance at the camera and raise an eyebrow. It was that kind of twatty delivery, really that bad, kind of really rad, really took me out of the film because it was um, a good film and actually quite affecting. And and then, but in the end, you got this very key line which is delivered in such a kind of like clunky way. It's like just do another take. Yeah, you, he, he should have said it was beauty killed the beast, and then the director should have said cut. <laughs> And they should have said doing that again. <laughs> so, uh, so let's see if we're right. We both said King Kong, and it is yes, it is King Kong. Okay, okay. so that's one point for us. Question two. Yep. What is the name of the Irish pub in the series? It's always sunny in Philadelphia. I have Absolutely never seen that show. No idea. Isn't that the with Danny DeVito in it? Yes. Um, and Rob McElhenney. Um, so, don't know. Probably going to be. Cafferties or something, I don't know. I'm gonna say the five leaf clover. Wow, okay. Oh, Paddy's pub. Oh, mm. Jesus. 
Boring. Okay, so yeah. one. That's not too bad. Well, it's yeah. pretty bad. It's fifty percent. Um. <laughs> okay. Uh. Oh. Okay. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, is the tagline from which movie? That's Jaws. Got to be surely. Well, it's Jaws. Two. Oh, Jaws two. Yeah, Jaws two. Um. Oh, is this going to be a trick question? Is actually Jaws three. I don't know. Jaws three probably would have had some. That would have been called just when you thought it was safe to go back in the theater, really, wouldn't it? <laughs> Jaws 3 probably would have referred to as 3D-ness. So uh, let's go with Jaws 2. Okay, and the answer is Jaws 2. Good. Oh, okay. So what year did Marty McFly go back? What? Oh, what year did Marty McFly go back to in Back to the Future? Okay, 55. 55, was it? I was going to say 57, but then I was just guessing something in the 50s. So I'll go 55 with you, yeah. Yep, 55. Boom. Okay, the next one. What brand and model of car flies through the sky in the second Harry Potter movie? Oh, my God. Never seen a single Harry Potter film. Neither have I. Although, weirdly, um, uh, my wife just um, watched every single Harry Potter film um, in a row in about three days. I don't know how she did it. Um, Do they they get better or worse? It's probably not a DeLorean, I'm guessing. Do the films get better or worse? I couldn't tell really. I mean, I watched, I saw scenes from some of them. I mean, I saw scenes from the first one, uh, and I saw scenes from the last one, and they all seemed a bit crap, to be honest. I mean, to be, the last one, like, was clearly would have had the biggest budget in that. Like, there's a scene at the end where Harry Potter is like having a fight with uh, uh, Ralph. Bynes character whatever he's called the one without the nose and it like they they, they have like a normal fist fight and then they start flying through the air and like the the super imposing like the special effects visual effects are so bad that it it, I was just thinking this is probably like a 250 million dollar movie and it just looks absolutely terrible it looks like something from Doctor Who so that wasn't impressive anyway no idea let's call it it's going to be a British car isn't it it's going to be a Rover P6, okay? <laughs> I'm going to go with the Rolls-Royce. You go with the Rover P6. <laughs> I was actually closer. Wow. It's, a Ford, it's a Ford Anglia. <laughs> of course it is. Hopefully there was someone, as that happened, someone said, is that a Ford Anglia? As it flew overhead. I bought a T-shirt, by the way, that just says Rover P6 on it. I Amazing. can't I can't stop thinking about that film with Mick Jagger's son in it. Um, Okay. Not doing too badly here. Too ba- too well, sorry. The next question. Who was Jerry's slacker neighbour in the Seinfeld TV series? I'm assuming that's the one, the Kramer, is it? I guess so. Yeah, it must be. It's the only other character I know. Yeah, because I've never seen it, but okay. So we've gone with Kramer? Do it. Cosmo Kramer. So yeah, we got that one right. That's fine. Good, okay, good. good. That's good. <clears throat> okay. So this is question seven coming up, yeah? Yep. He's out to prove he's got nothing to prove is the tagline from which cult movie? He's out to prove he's got nothing to prove. Um, absolutely no doubt. Cult movie. Uh, he's out to prove. No, it's not like Ferris Bueller's Day Off or something like that, is it? No, that's yeah. like he's got yeah. Jack Spratt to do all day. I, I really don't know what this is. I've, I've, I've no idea what they... I'm not even sure what it really means, so that makes it difficult to guess, even. 
I'm gonna. Is this something like Saturday Night Fever? I'm trying to think of something where it's like someone's got a swagger, you know? Yeah, that, actually, that would work because he, he would. Yes, that that fits with the theme of the movie. Let's go with Saturday Night Fever then. Yeah. The answer is Napoleon Dynamite. Ah, oh, brilliant film. Such a good film. That's a niche niche joke for the fans out there. But I can throw this stick over those mountains. Okay, the next question. What song featured in the classic Western movie High Noon? Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> What was the one where was it? Oh, not, no, was hang it, on, have I seen that? Yes, High Noon's the one with Gary. Um, Sinise. No. What's his Lineker, name? Oldman, Daniels. <laughs> Lineker. Um, no, I'm th- I keep, all I've got in my head is Rio Bravo because that's got like um, one of the cast members in that it is like literally like a singer songwriter from that era and they just put him in the film for the like for the kids and he's just constantly playing like his songs in prison it's ridiculous it's so blatant it's like putting I, ed sheeran into like gladiator or something well actually it uh, was in something wasn't he that he was in yeah, he rocked up in game of thrones i think that's literally the point at which i switched game of thrones off and never looked at it again in fact Look at it, they put black gaffer tape over your DVD collection. Yeah. All your um, imported German Blu-rays. <laughs> song would be in High Noon? No idea. Oh, well, I don't know. Is High Noon, was that the one with Lee Marvin where he sang that song? Or was that Paint That Wagon? Gary Cooper, that's what I'm thinking of. Gary Cooper is the one in it. But it, it I have seen it, but I don't remember a particular song. I'm, I'm just going to guess the song was called High Noon. Have you got any guesses? Let's go with High Noon. I'll go with 12 o'clock midday. <laughs> You don't want to go with Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, which obviously we were very close to guessing. Jesus. Okay, that's a stupid, stupid quiz for kids. Okay, next question. Who played the character Peter Parker in 2004 Spider-Man 2? That was the Tobey Maguire days, wasn't it? Boom, Tobey Maguire. Uh, In which fictional town is British Soap Coronation Street set? Fictional town? (sighs) Walford is Walford is what's it called EastEnders isn't it Um, Shittum Shitting Fuckbury (laughs) (laughs) Bollocks Tidbury no I I have no idea this is this this Weatherfield this crap name crap name crap show crap here At the 2016 Oscars, which couple wrongly announced La La Land as the winner of Best Film? That must have been awkward. Yeah, I remember it happening, but no one watches the Oscars anymore. So, <coughs> which I'm couple? Too busy. Are they I'm too act- busy watching Oscar with Sylvester Stallone on repeat. Um, yeah, which couple? Was it a pair of female comedians? Yeah, maybe. Um... What's say it? Tina Fey and some yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's the other? Amy Pooler? No, no, no. Let, Was, is that? Uh, yeah, could be. That, that'll good, do. Yeah. Oh, Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. Oh, really? When was this? I think they would have read enough scripts by now. Um, 2016. Okay. Um, what are the names of the FBI special agents in the American science fiction TV series The X Files? I know this one. Mulder and Scully. 
It's Dave Mulder and Bob Scully. <laughs> okay, that's that's that. So we're getting down to the last couple now. Okay. On Wednesdays, we wear pink. Which group from the movie Mean Girls have this dress code? Which group? Um, from the movie Mean Girls. I have no idea. I don't even know what that question means. Uh, I, I guess it's like a, a clique within the Mean Girls universe. I I, I don't know. The pink bitches. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll go. I'll go with the salmon slags. The plastics. Okay. Just sounds like a 70s no wave band. Wait, he's no wave band. Nothing on earth could come between them is the tagline from which disaster movie? Is it the day after tomorrow? Where like the father's looking for his son, Jake Chandler. Um, I don't know the no because it sounds too romantic. Um, nothing on earth could come between them. I don't I can't really think of any disaster movies which really focus on a particular romance. Um, we might as well just go for the day after tomorrow because I've got literally no idea. Titanic. Oh, that actually makes sense. Yeah, I was thinking like of all <laughs> disaster <laughs> movie with a strong focus on the romance. Ah, oh, there isn't a single one. Oh no, one of the most popular films of all time. <laughs> In which Austin Powers movie does Beyonce make an appearance? Well, it's only two of them, isn't it? I think there might be three. There? Well, let's say number two. Okay. The Spy Who Shagged Me. Oh, well, we, Gold Member, which is the oh, sequel, that, isn't it? So that's the third one? No. On. It's, it's Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, and then Austin Powers, Gold Member. Have a little goosey. Oh, is, oh, so there's literally only two. So is the first one called The Spy Who Shagged Me? <sighs> Am I? Look, I'm the quiz master, and I'm doing research here at the same time. It's pathetic. You're doing nothing. Right, let me have a look. I'm trying to keep track of which number of question we're on. Which Was that 15? <laughs> Are you holding your fingers up or something? <laughs> holding up 15? Well, oh, I'm I, writing I, in my Mario book. Oh yeah, Austin. Oh, there is three. There are three, rather. Um, so there's right there. Maybe. So we got there was 97's International Man of Mystery, 99 Spy Shag Me, 2002's Gold Member. Oh wow. Well, I didn't know that. Okay, we got it wrong. Is that 15? Yes. Okay. We think so. We're doing very well, are we? <laughs> Which head writer of Saturday Night Live was also a star in TV's 30 Rock? That's got to be Tina Fey. That has got to be Tina Fey, yes. Yes, yes, it is a question, right? Thank God. That is about the Savalis. No questions in here about Michael Wincott or even Jeff Wincott. Okay. In the film Pulp Fiction, which Bible verse does Hitman Jules Winfield quote? Oh, come on. There's no choruses in the Bible, is there? Or bridges, or instrumental breaks. <laughs> All this is. Um, oh. No idea. Ezekiel twenty-five seventeen. Wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone. No. Twenty-five seventeen. By the way, it's my favourite time of day. <laughs> um, <laughs> in the US sitcom Seinfeld, what does George's family celebrate instead of Christmas? Hanukkah? Festivus. Again. That is one that you either know or don't know. <laughs> okay. Here are the final two. Highclere Castle is the film location of which British period drama? Highclere? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, like, um, 
Let me think. Period drama. British period drama. Downton Abbey? No. Uh, no, because it literally is called... It, the place is called Downton Abbey, so... Um, I don't like Pathfinder or something like that. Is that even a period drama? It's Downton Abbey. We got that right because I said it was Downton Abbey. Well, so it's, it's not a, called the, Downton Abbey then. Yeah, in in the show it is, but it's a filming location. Oh right. Oh sorry. Yeah, I didn't, no, I didn't get that. I thought it was I, like I, a, a fictional us, place. Sorry. Give us a half mark for that then, because we didn't agree, and I was right. And the final question: Which best-selling novel by Sally Rooney was made into a TV series in 2020? She played football for Liverpool, didn't she? I don't even know what the question means. So which... <laughs> which best-selling novel by Sally Rooney was made into a TV series in 2020? Um, Wayne's World. She's not Norm- even... Rain, Rain, normal Rain, people. Normal people. Never heard of it. Oh, we did terribly, terribly. Three, four, five, six... Seven and a half out of 20. Don't worry, I'll edit it so we get them all right. Um, uh, we need to, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. If you did do that at home, by the way, what did you get? Um, email us at themenwhotalk at outlook.com. Not themenwhotalk at hotmail.org or whatever we said before. Themenwhotalk at outlook.com. Um, and yeah, just um, before we move on to the movies, Rupert, what do you feel about, how do you feel, sorry, about Amazon Prime Video adding ads? yeah uh, that was a just slightly disturbing development because i i'm not sure how this is going to work now because effectively they've got so they've got freebie right which has not really very extensive ads it has to be said and it's quite watchable um and then they're going to have like so the standard prime video tier is going to have fewer ads and then you pay or you can now start paying an extra three quid a month to have no ads, which is basically what we got now. So, mm. uh, it's annoying, but not a complete deal breaker. What I suspect it actually means is that they're going to throw more ads at Freebie, and then the standard Prime's just going to be like Freebie is now, perhaps something like that. Yeah, because it was worded in such a way it said it would be like sort of intrusively fewer ads than other streaming services. It was worded in such a sort yeah. of obfuscated way. It's not really definitive. Yeah, I, it's like, manageable then. It's okay because at the end of the day, I cannot get my PM Entertainment anywhere else. So, um, <laughs> um, and we'll it, it is. A, I mean, it is good value. So, and it is a good. Um, it's a good app. So yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. Yeah. Just about. We'll have to wait and see. But it's all about the content, isn't it? So. <coughs> um, right then, the movies, Rupert. So, um, what have you got for us this week? Well, I thought I'd start off this week with a new one because um, this is one that people might actually genuinely have on their watch list, um, which is called Saltburn, uh, which is currently showing on Prime. In fact, without ads currently. Oh. And, yeah, so Salt Bunny, it's a, it's a jet black comedy from Emerald Fennell, who's an actor turned director who made her directorial debut in 2020 with a film called Promising Young Woman. It's a film I have not seen, but I ne- will now seek out. So Saltburn is sort of a period piece, albeit set in 2006. It focuses on a young man 
called Oliver, played by Barry uh, Keown. Keegan? Keown. Our um, boy Barry. Our boy Barry. It is. He's. he's it's. It's Keogan. It is Keogan. Okay. So he's. Um, he's venturing to Oxford University, and he is friendless and awkward. And then he meets this hugely popular and handsome guy called Felix, played by um, an actor called Jacob Elordi. Now, Felix kind of pities Oliver at first, but then they spark up an apparently genuine friendship. And because Oliver's home life is a total disaster and like his mum is an addict, um, Felix has him come and stay at his castle with his family, the castle of Saltburn. So it's this huge mansion and it's got, um, it's headed up by uh, a matriarch and patriarch. um, And it's got servants and they've got some kind of weird stray friends hanging around an extended family. And, some of these people who are all very, very posh, uh, are distrustful of Oliver and his low social standing. But Oliver is quite crafty and he he plays the game and he seduces them and attacks them as well as any of them can. And basically, the film is about him establishing his position in this slightly weird, sometimes warm, sometimes hostile, high society kind of lazy world. Um, but it also transpires that perhaps his own sob story might not be all it's cracked up to be. So there are lots of secrets involved as well. Anyway, it all ends up in total chaos and violence and tragedy. And um, I felt like with this film, there are actually hints of, yes, that's right, I'm going to mention Stanley Kubrick, hints of Kubrick's <laughs> Barry Lyndon, because with that, it was about this sort of outsider forcing his way up the social class system, a system that despises him and just wants to get rid of him. Really. So there's some similarities there. And this is a genuinely unpredictable film, not just in terms of its events, but even when you know what's going to happen, it's like it's how those events are portrayed is quite exciting. It has a really, really acerbic sense of comedy. It's just totally poisonous about everyone. And in the end, genuinely have to think carefully about where your sympathies lie um the editing needs special mention because it's just amazing like the pacing is perfect but also like the conversations because it's a very talky film but the conversations are edited like action scenes like there'll be like these dinner party scenes where there's all these like like barbed conversations and and you'll get like a, a grimace or a glance or a grin and it's the way it cuts between them it's, it's time like punches it's it's really well done and Barry, Barry Keoghan is probably miscast in this movie to be honest like he's too old and his accent isn't perfect but he his the fact that he's miscast and still brilliant is testament to his quality because his commitment to this role is incredible like it requires him to do stuff without spoiling anything there's stuff he has to do in this film or portray which most mainstream actors would not even consider um really messed up stuff um so that's cool and that again makes it extremely unpredictable and i really liked it and probably nothing we haven't seen before in a way but never seen it done like this with this level of black humor and visual style i would say so i i really enjoyed saltburn um and everyone should watch it. It's very dark, 
but also funny at the same time. Uh, so yeah, I enjoyed that. Well, right. that does sound quite funky. Yeah, that I, I probably will watch that. Actually, that does sound quite funky. <clears throat> yeah, I didn't. Um, yeah, what? I did, there isn't really much else to say about it without spoiling it, because some of the scenes, especially towards the end, like because for a long time, you, you your sympathy is firmly with this youngster who's got this sad backstory and like. And you've got all these posh wankers being, at best, patronising, at worst, just openly hostile. But then, after a while, you realise that he is sort of, he, he's playing their their game as well as them. So, and it's got, Rosamund Pike's really funny in it as the as a mother. And Richard E. Grant, possibly even funnier, as like this kind of like really repressed father figure. Um so that was fun. Yeah. I think it would be, you can imagine it as not a comedy. And I think it mm-hmm. would just come across as a bit um, absurd and miserable. But because it's done like a really, really barbed comedy, I think it works really well. And it is generally funny. Yeah, but not in a kind of laugh out loud way, more a kind of like, kind of. Crikey Moses just, way. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's the unpredictability and also just the, the hideousness of almost every character in it in their own way. Totally over um, the top. Brilliant. Yeah, I've got a film I'm going to talk about later on, actually, that I can't, you can't really talk about the plot, um, although it's I will at length. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I've, got, I've got a few two minutes I just want to sort of get out the way, really, if that's cool. Um, Absolutely. The, 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 I watched the, just because we've just come out of the festive period, I watched the Polar Express for the first time. Oh, yeah. And and I, I enjoyed it, um, but I, I found creepy. that um, no, no, I didn't find it creepy. What I found was it felt like I was watching a what's the term? Um, what's it called? Like a you know what I'm trying to say? Robert Zemeckis experiment in like an, yeah like like a show like an animation showcase okay like it, it, with there were some scenes in it especially with the um with the dances which did look unrealistic <laughs> a, bit, a bit iffy it's when there was too it's like when there's too much going on on screen it started to look a bit iffy yeah. um uh but when and there was a scene where like a ticket flies out the window and it goes on this journey and then comes back to the train which is quite cool but again yeah. I felt like I was watching like an animation showcase like a tech a tech demo is what I was uh, the word of term I was looking for. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. I mean Zemeckis is he's always liked to play with like very virtuoso um, kind of cinematography and stuff like that. But in previous films, it would have been like one or two shots throughout the film. It'd be like, oh wow, that was cool. But then you get something like the Polar Express, of course. Then it's like constant. It's it's all virtuoso. Yeah, I I enjoyed it, and it was nice to watch it with my son, who's you know nearly three, and he, he was kind of enjoying it. Cause he's into trains at the moment, and it was cool. And um, Tom Hanks is in it, and there's some quite funky scenes and songs and stuff, and it was it's quite interesting to watch. It's quite uh, like you know there's the whole uncanny valley thing, but I found it quite it, it it was so sort of idiosyncratic in how it looked. It felt quite unique. It didn't feel yeah. like a typical sort of you know CG, uh, and it, of course it's all quite dark. It's all a lot of it is sort of set at night, and it's it's um. It's quite sort of mechanical in the in the train and the sort of mm. steam steaminess of it. It's not like really sort of 
light and whimsical. It's kind of there's like a touch of misery underneath it all. I think I found the whole mm-hmm. thing just like there's like a touch of sadness underneath everything, and I think the sort of slight unrealness of how everyone looks sort of added to that. So I enjoyed it. It's one of those ones that I would kind of happily watch every Christmas. To be honest, it's you know not like a top tier Christmas film, but an upper mid tier one certainly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not quite a lethal weapon then. No, it's not not even Die Hard four. Um, I did watch Lethal Weapon this Christmas, but I didn't feel it was necessary to talk about it. I know this. I, I watched it oh, in a bit. I'll tell you about the film. I, I realized I watch for the last three years on the trot. I've watched a film with the same actor in it by yeah. accident when, I, when I'm doing my present wrapping. And it's just it's ridiculous. Um, and another quick two minutes before I sort of flip it back to you. Um, I can't really comment on this too much because I didn't get the chance to watch all of it. But I wondered if you did. Merry mm. Little Batman. No, I haven't seen it all yet. Yeah. Again, it's one I watched with my son, and and then he lost. Whether you make it through, through, frankly, is it's a flip of a coin. Yeah, we'll talk talk about this when we've both seen it then. Yes, it did look pretty cool though. I like the visual style and stuff. Um, and the last thing I want to say, just because then I can get three of my movies out of the way, is I watched because of your suggestion last time. I think it was your movie of the week, The Killer, with Michael Fassbender. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I I really like this. Um, and and I know you said at the start. I realised about an hour in. I remember what you said about stick with the first twenty minutes if you find it a sort of like a bit of a trudge. But I found it so entrancing and just the con the constant almost like nonsensical time filling. Uh, I I was just really in the mood for it. If you know what I mean, and the way the story moved forward, I was just I was completely hips deep in it. And yeah, you said. Again, not wanting to spoil anything, you said at the end, the um, there's only one way it could have ended, really. Where I think your words, um, okay. and I, I was, I, I, I was happy with every aspect of it. Yeah. Um, the Smith thing tickled me it's, because I, I didn't yeah. realize how many songs. I thought, because he's there at the start. He's there. He's been there for days. And I imagine listening to the Smiths for three days straight. Unbelievable! You'd be so miserable. You'd think I wouldn't mind listening to someone who sings from the front of their throat, not the back, a la Paul Young. Um, so yeah, I'm not, I I enjoyed it, and and it's something I always look forward to in David Fincher films is the sound design. Yes. He's got a way of like accentuating like the sort of creaks and clinking of lights and the sort of breathiness of a curtain brushed up against the wall. There's something really luxurious about the way he does his sound. Yeah, luxurious is a good way of putting it. His whole aesthetic is luxurious. And I, yeah, I know what you mean about the sound design. It'll be like you'll, he knows how to like deploy music, but also he knows how to use silence. And like, so you'll be in like one location or you'll hear kind of like a low hum of a, a you know, air conditioning unit or something like that. And then suddenly you'll cut outside and it'll be like blaring car horns and stuff like that. I don't know. It's just like he's really, really really clever the way he uses editing um and i just realized that i was going to say the soundtrack was really cool as well and i've just realized it's by trent Reznor, so that makes sense because he's he's not shy is he um so yeah i i i really liked that i i couldn't really see anything wrong with it from when i was watching i just thought this is just a like a very high quality film in every regard and i, yeah. I know that there's always going to be things and this will come in a bit later on as well like this film was yeah i've watched a few long films this period well i haven't watched satan tango don't get me wrong but um two two hours plus and yeah. and i know there are a few like my mother really struggles for things to keep her attention if it's not like transformers and i i think that i think some people just don't like films of this pace and that's fine 
Yeah. But I'm happy to sit there and just sort of like drink them in sometimes. Yeah, so. I just think when the the filmmaking craft is so like um well thought out and the performances are so precise and well everything's so precise in it. It's like you look you watch every frame, don't you? And because it feels like every frame matters. I found that with Saltburn as well, to be honest. Like every frame seems to matter because it was so well edited. Definitely something to do with the editing. Like so well edited that every as soon as it cuts, it there's some meaning to what you're being asked to look at, if you sort of mean. It's not no filler shots or anything like that. And I and Fincher definitely has that. There's no there's no filler. It's really meaningful. Yeah, it's and it's funny all... in a film like The Killer because like, I think maybe the reason why I was not sure about The Killer for the first 20 minutes is because when he was coming out with his kind of shitty, mundane, like, phrases and like, self-help quotes and things, like, I I kind of assumed, I thought, oh, is this just not very good writing? And I realised, no, no, this is his character, isn't it? He's, this is... This is mundane to him. All that stuff. This is his. This is his day job. The kind of thoughts that go through someone's head in any mundane job. Difference is, of course, that he's about to shoot someone from across the street. We'll talk about bad writing later on. Don't you worry about that. Oh. We'll, we'll cover that this week as well. Um, yeah, and I think there's almost uh, in terms of the spacing as well. As you said, this sort of this. He seems to have this gift, David Fincher. Of, when you're watching a film that's sort of taken this, um, taken its time like the killer does, as my mind, I never found my mind wandering. I found I was always like focused on what was happening, yeah. and just trying trying to when when he does certain actions or says certain things or whenever he's in a certain situation, I was always as my mind would think, oh, I wonder what he's going to do next. He's going to, and then something would happen, yeah. and it was almost like the film kept me on my mental toes as I was. It seemed to be perfectly paced with my thought speed as well, if you know what I mean. Like yeah. I was constantly engaged because even when nothing was really happening and there was some sort of, you know, like he's on a flight or something, you're always just thinking, I'm really into this. What's going to happen next? Or maybe this, maybe this. Or what did that mean? And then something would happen to sort of snap you back into it. So it just felt it didn't feel long at all. I think there's something to do with the editing there as well, uh, with script and editing. But it was something that um, uh, a comment that, great critic peter bradshaw said in his guardian review of the killer because he absolutely loved it and he referred to this kind of like uh the film has this kind of really addictive loop to it and i know what he means it's like you'll have a scene where it's like he's going to like scope out you know the next place the next place where someone's he's going to do the hit and he's obviously thinking way ahead of us and then you'll see him like do a bunch of actions or take some object off the site off a windowsill or something like that that he's clearly going to use later but you've got absolutely no idea of what it's going to lead yeah and it's like there's something really i know i know what he means by that kind of addictive quality of it it's like it's constantly that stuff and it's like right so he's taken that and he's moved over there and he's he's made sure that that door doesn't close or whatever and he's looking at that person and it's like okay and then then you watch him kind of carry out and you catch up to it. It's, like, it's, ah, it's, right. it's yeah, it's almost like the, the when you sometimes watch a heist film, they explain what they're going to do, and then they just do it, and it's like yes. okay. But it's a really interesting way of showing that, and also it, it, there's some of the things that kills these films when they're trying to be cool and they think that you know when 
you see someone doing something like mixing two things together and then the voiceover will say the average person doesn't know that if you mix two pounds of, and you think oh just shut up stop trying to sound like you're in, trying to impress a kid in school uh so you yeah, know I, I really liked it i i'd i'd be happy for um this to be a franchise like john wick <laughs> imagine it that would be uh, pretty cool, actually. I'm just just him moving on to like the next band. So it's like, oh, I'm really just constantly listening to Spin Doctors now when I do my hits. Yeah, and he's constantly two princes because they've only got that one oh. fucking song. <laughs> 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 um, uh, yeah. Um, so thank yes. you for thank you for suggesting it. It was a bloody good one. Bloody good one. <laughs> bloody billionaire. Okay. Billionaire. So. Where that's that's on Netflix, isn't it? I mean, yes, yes, it is. Yeah, the killer. So I will now talk about uh, a film I watched on Plex of all places. Uh, it's free on Plex, uh, and it's Dark Star, uh, which is John Carpenter's first feature film, made in 1974. Oh, okay. Um, it's about a group of basically hippies on a spaceship in deep space and their job seems to be going about destroying various celestial bodies with large bombs and then they will hang out play cards smoke weed and bicker really they also have Uh. a pet alien on board it's basically just a beach ball with feet and and that causes all sorts of problems but the real problem ultimately is the bomb itself because it's ai driven and it's become defiant and argumentative so it isn't <clears throat> their wishes so the plot is loose i would say looser than an alcoholic's trousers and it, well, looser than an alcoholic's stools <laughs> um yeah so it's quite an aimless film which is kind of the point it's sort of it's basically taking the observations of 2001 a space odyssey that's right kubrick again it's taking those observations about technology making us bored and complacent and it puts it into a comedy setting which isn't too bad a concept um on the plus side it is it is quite prescient about like voice activated ai companions i mean the idea of them having to talk down a rogue bomb by appealing to existentialism is kind of cool um but yeah it is basically what 2001 did. Um, I would say the style of comedy is exactly funny at a dialogue level. Isn't um, the, 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 let me just let me just write that down. The comedy isn't funny. There is one genuinely brilliant sequence where one of the characters is attempting to like he's attempting to get the alien back in its cage basically, and the alien keeps like slipping away, and gradually the guy finds himself in. A, a rapidly worsening situation until you know it starts off with just him being slightly inconvenienced and but in the end of this whole sequence he's like dangling from the underside of a lift above a bottomless drop and it's like he's just so exasperated with it it's a slapstick sequence but it's played in a very deadpan understated way which makes it more funny and i think john carpenter does very well with basically zero budget he shrouds his sets in just money saving darkness really and he creates this kind of space noir aesthetic. And of course, he's got this minimalist electronic score, naturally, which works well. Um, so on that side of it, it's pretty cool. The performances are terrible across the board. Um, um, 
but that's mostly because it is it's effectively an expanded student film. I mean, he I think he made this as a student film and then, ex, and then expanded on it with a bit more cash, maybe. The uh, late Dan O'Bannon is one of the crew. He went on to write Alien and Total Recall. I thought his name sounded familiar. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, he directed the fantastic trash horror of A Return of the Living Dead. And then... Yeah. Um, so, yeah, visually, the film is brilliant. But the script, the pacing, the acting, <laughs> not so good. The um, tagline as well, the spaced out odyssey. Yes. I don't think, I'm not sure this film would be remembered if it weren't John Carpenter. It's not disastrously bad or anything. And actually a lot of the aesthetics are consistent with his later work. But there's a reason he he, he didn't go back to comedy until a Big Trouble in Little China. And that was like a decade later. And there's a reason for that, because he does mood and atmosphere and tension and horror a lot better than he does comedy. Mm-hmm. So I think it's worth a watch for completion's sake, but definitely not the place to start in the Carpenter canon. Clearly the place to start is um, Precinct 13. It is a totally yeah. a relic of its time, Dark Star, but it, it's not without merit. I think there's some um, memoirs and there's a bit of my... Um, just looking at, I know we talk about John Carpenter a lot, but um, you, you've seen it, the, the canon. I think it's a perfectly reasonable ask to just sit down one week and think, I'm just going to whip my way through John Carpenter's entire filmography. Because just looking at this, yeah, it just, I don't know, there's such, there's such like character, um, character, a character in his films. But I was just looking at it then in the Memoirs of an Invisible Man. I don't think I've ever seen. The one with Chevy Chase. Yeah, and Chevy Chase, mm, is he funny? Is he funny? Uh, not particularly. Yeah, I think I, uh, he's a bit of a Will Ferrell. It's like, oh, except they just tried harder with Will Ferrell to just constantly put him in films, I guess. Um, but yeah, not inherently particularly funny, but has been in funny films. So I put it. Yeah, yeah. This is like it's probably it's probably one of those things you could say. Oh, this is like a Chevy Chase hit reel, and it would be, you know, four minutes of sequences from films, and you'd think, oh, I'll have to check him out, and then you'd watch the films and realize that none of them stand up no. at full length. It'd be like, yeah, you'd watch them and think, well, Steve Martin was funny at that, wasn't he, in that film? The I will person, have to watch okay. mem- uh, the Invisible Man one. Is it called Memoirs of an Invisible Man? Yeah. It's because I think it's the only one I haven't seen. I think I think he writes his memoirs with Invisible Ink, actually. Really? That's a good joke, that is. Did you write that down? You tell um, so. I put my notebook away, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I watched a film that was one of, uh, courtesy of my, my brother Transvaal, giving me, you know, his many, many DVDs from okay. charity shops around the UK for 10 Beach. Um, directed by Philip J. Roth. This film... I couldn't even originally like find it on Letterboxd where I record the films I've seen. And uh, it's not surprising, really, because it comes under three different titles. Of course it is. So this is 1999's Olivia Gruner film, um, The Last Line of Defense, a.k.a. The Interceptors, a.k.a. Alien Interceptors. Um, wow. This stars Olivia Gruner, Brad Dourif, and Ernie Hudson. Um, 
And this film, this is one of the ones, I, I, like I said, I watched one once, I think it was called TNT. And then last year or the year before, I watched something else with Olivia Gruner in it. And I seem to just watch his films whenever I'm wrapping presents. I don't know why I'm drawn to him at that time of year. <laughs> I, I think it's because I don't have to pay attention as much because I'm doing something. But so this film, it's not very good. It's it's a Hollywood DVD classic, <clears throat> and it starts off with uh, just <laughs> it starts off. You know how action films begin, and it shows like how hard the main character is. Like sort of he just gets in a situation, you know, a scuffle and kicks everyone's ass, and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. he's 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 a tough nut sort of thing. This starts off with Olivia Gruner wearing a suit, walking directly into some bloody massive, obviously evil company called like Naughty Tech or whatever. And he goes in, he walks straight in right through the gate in a suit and, and walks straight up to the counter. Mm. And uh, he says, oh, the, the person, and it's almost like a receptionist, a male receptionist says, what are you doing here? And Olivia Gruner doesn't say anything. And then someone comes out and says, you better come with me. And then it cuts to Olivia Gruner sat down in a bloodied shirt, tied to a steel chair, mm-hmm. and someone beats him about the head and neck with a phone book. Right. He's clowning him with a phone, and he is getting battered. And then someone comes in, smokes a cigarette enigmatically, blows it in his face, leans over and says, plan didn't work out like you thought it would, huh? And I thought, the word plan there, using it in that context, is generous because he walked in, didn't say anything, and then just got caught. Um, so, and then he, and then he bloody escapes, beats everyone up, and steals some sort of um, device, and ends up getting away by. And I thought this would probably rip your arms off. He gets away by going to the roof and stand. He stands up and he just holds up like a hook on like a metal, a metal stick with a hook on top. Mm. he's holding with one hand above his head and they say what are you doing and he says getting out of here and then a glider comes down catches the hook and just takes him into the distance <laughs> i thought you'd probably be forced to let go of that olivia <laughs> if a plane flying at over 100 miles an hour came down and snatched a hook i was holding out of my hand it would either tear my arms off or it would break them, and I would just be like a rag doll flapping around. So that was brilliant. Um, and and from then on, I thought, oh, this could be kind of junky fun, but it's too boring. Um, yeah. It's it's too it's too talky, and it it ends up that like some aliens have landed in some part of Canada. <laughs> read nice. read Ukrainian uh, <laughs> substation. Um, and it, it and Brad Dourif is like an evil kind of. Uh, member of the senate who sends in this sort of team of expendable goons to try and keep it hush hush and it's just there's so much talking and and them on the phone to him and him just sitting in an office in the pentagon and obviously hiding information from them and it's a wandering around and talking and then the team just like having bad comedy interactions with each other um and and I and I did zone out, and it just it got really really sort of so I did notice a few things that were of interest. One is that they with the alien, they completely rip off Predator, not in so much mm. how it looks because it looks terrible, but um in in the do you know when in Predator when it cuts to what the Predator sees it does that kind of yes sound. it does that it does uh, the kind of like it does the sort of clicky and the and oh, the really? sort of heartbeat thing, and it does the visual. And I thought you're just ripping off Predator. You're just ripping off Predator. Yeah, that's um, just the same thing, you know. 
it is it is the same thing um and then there's a couple there's like some sort of racial politicking going on with like the mm-hmm. mexican member and there's all that sort of stuff it's just a bad comedy um but the bit that made me laugh actually made me laugh and it's towards the start of the film because like i said it gets more and more boring as it goes on um <laughs> it's there's um the, the original team three of them it's like olivia grun and two other guys and he's got like a tech expert and you know the driver or whatever and they get joined mm. by this other team who've been around this alien before and they're really cagey about what they know and there's a bit where oliver grun one of oliver grun's team goes into this barn on this farm and then and then you just see it flick to like i guess it's him supposed to be possessed but it just looks like the predator vision him running up past his other teammates and just runs off into the trees and he turns one of the the, the guy in his team sorry i'm not explaining this for a while turns around and says mm. to these other guys right what's happening here why aren't you telling us and they say bro i don't know what you mean what do you mean why don't we telling you and he says why did dave just take off all of his clothes and run into the forest <laughs> And I thought that's a valid question. If I was the t- if I was on a team of crack seals I'd been with for like a decade, and one of them took off their clothes and ran into the forest, I would think, oh, that's out of character. I think there'd that's, be questions in there. That's not what he normally does when we're on a mission. <laughs> um, but then after that, it just gets tedious, like bad, badly choreographed bar fights, uh, silly comedy, a, an awful love subplot, and just bad sci-fi stuff. Um, so the last line of defense, alien interceptors, the interceptors. However, you come across it, don't watch it. And there's a sequel called wow. Alien Interceptors 2 that Olivia Gruner directed. Well, it sounds like uh, Transvaal's going to have to get down the old charity shops and <laughs> dig yeah. that one out. And just imagine going through like char- charity shops around the UK looking for one specific film. Yeah, that would be, like, yeah. <laughs> I might not even be on DVD. Um, yeah, just put your yeah, put your feelers out to your to your social network. I'll pay twenty P for this one. One, one, one thing I do want to say is I, I I don't know what the song is. The first track off Massive Attack's first album, I think it is. You'll know the baseline, right? So you know you know it goes do 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 that one, right? The music that plays multiple times throughout this film on in a lot of sequences changes one note it goes it just goes higher at the end and they're just completely ripping off the massive attack bass riff okay it's the same drum pattern it's unbelievable but again what year was it made? It's 1999 okay yeah that's that's a very it's a very late 90s kind of like line in it anyway yeah um yes um okay and where where was oh that was just on that's on a dvd if anyone wants to buy it off me for 15 quid what's the sequel called it's either called alien interceptors 2 or interceptors 2 nothing absolutely nothing. yeah it was hard enough to find it it's, well if you go to if you type in olivia gruner as we all do at some point is it going to be on like imdb as like films he's directed oh my god i just feel weird saying that Okay, there he is, looking like a fitness instructor. Um, oh, who knows? Who knows? Was that is, is that the only film he's directed? In fact, I 
possibly his films i'm looking at them, they're all like around the three to four star mark interceptor force two no he's done a few that's it that's it that could be the, yeah sean lambert this is an interceptor it's got his own wikipedia page so hang on so it was called alien it was called alien interceptor the interceptors last line of defense but the sequel is called interceptor force two so yeah. it's just it's it's the sequel to the wrong title <laughs> These fucking films I watch, I swear to God, <laughs> so many better things I could be doing. <laughs> okay. Um, circuit, circuit two, the final punch. Circuit three, the street monk. So I assume there's no punching in that film. Um, oh right. Well, from Olivia Grunier to Jean-Claude Van Damme, I'm going to talk about Kickboxer, which is on ITVX. Talking about adverts. Whew. Wow. It, it, it's almost worse that they tell you how long the adverts are going to last as well. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You literally come up and it's like five minutes of adverts. What? Did it say five minutes? Yeah. It, it, it comes up. It's over four minutes at times. Yeah. And the, the, know, the, the longest I've seen is like two minutes, 15. Mm. Any more than that. And I would think, oh, come on. That's like a full on put break. <laughs> um. So, right. The story of this one is that uh, Jean-Claude's older brother is a top kickboxer in the US and he decides to go to Thailand with Jean-Claude to fight in this my, uh, in in the homeland of Mai Tai. Um, his opponent is a... It's a Mai Tai cocktail. <laughs> Mai Tai. Oh, um, <clears throat> um, his opponent is a monster of a man called Tong Po, who's uh proceeds to beat the older brother um to within an inch of his life he breaks his spine paralyzes him so jean-claude instead of say staying by his brother's bedside he buggers off into the woods to seek training um from this eccentric kickboxing mentor so that he can train up and defeat tong po uh the if he, he, I guess he gets his shit kicked out of him and Jean-Claude says, I'll be back in a minute. And he walks to a forest and just shouts out, does anyone know Taekwondo in a forest in the hope that someone will teach him? Uh, it is quite coincidental how it all happens because he just meet another American guy who says, oh, I know someone who can train you and says and drives him into the woods. Um, so, yeah, the tutor himself is this shoddy Mr. Miyagi knockoff who has no motivation to train this white warrior at all but he does it anyway um and then basically the film after the first 20 minutes the film is basically an extended training montage from that point onwards until obviously the inevitable showdown with tong po which famously is, involves is the still- old ways which means the combatants wrap their fists in cotton dip them in glue and then in broken glass <sighs> and the old oh, way yeah, and obviously, obviously in the 15th century there everyone had glass exactly exactly uh, everyone had a load of gorilla glue, and um, so yeah, obviously, the mentor's niece is a totally burning hot village girl who can somehow afford perfect makeup. Um, yeah, to say kickboxer is predictable is like saying Schindler's List is sad, it's like it's so like it's so by the numbers, it's like Playmobil storytelling, it's not really. It's not even really a script as such. It's more of just an outline for a script. And actually, literally, like the characters all speak in broken English because none of them are actually native English speakers. So 
it makes every line sound like a placeholder to like capture the essence of the scene without actually sounding like dialogue. It does make it very efficient, I suppose, but it also means it's completely devoid of any tension or peril because it's like the first draft. It's efficient. It's 103 minutes long. This isn't 85 minutes. That's true. But you've got to have all the preamble with the brother, I suppose. Um, um, did, is this the one where he trains him by like making him lie on the floor and then chucking cokes in it on his guts from a tree? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's the one. Um, like the editing, like we talked about great editing today. The editing in this <laughs> film is terrible on every level, uh, but mostly on the kind of the higher level, the kind of meta level. Like the rhythm is all wrong. The pacing is all wrong. You get no build up to like key narrative incidents they just happen with the same sense of importance as everything else if you see what i mean like sometimes it's even worse like there's this drawn out sequence where john claude van damme is taken to a bar to indulge in some drunk fighting which has this whole preamble then it has the build-up then it has the action then it has aftermath so you that in itself will tell a basic story okay so that's a scene but then later there's a scene where the main woman is raped by tong po and that just happens in seconds it's like suddenly she's been captured how we don't know she's taken to his lair where no idea he attacks her uh and then the scene ends and then suddenly she's back in the woods with Jean-Claude it's like what happened here there was no like this is a dramatic incident which has got absolutely no to totally decontextualize almost like it was just in there as a reason for Jean-Claude to have some incentive to win the final battle anyway it's got a really bad synth pop soundtrack there's a scene where like the tutor guy the Miyagi guy he's playing he's playing a flute right in the woods but this, the actual film score has like a synth flute to represent him playing it. They didn't even use a real flute to like overlay on top of him playing an actual flute. So uh, there is there are some fun fight scenes, although, as I said, it's like it's essentially um, sort of a montage sequence building up to this final fight. And then the final fight isn't enough to warrant what came before. It's like. It's over too soon and there's too much slow-mo, not enough flow, flow. So, yes, as a watching experience, it does feel very cobbled together by filmmakers not fluent in the language of film. So this is not essential, Jean-Claude. As we previously discussed, AWOL, Double Impact, Time Cop, even Bloodsport are better options in this one. I'm waiting for you to say Legionnaire, but you haven't said it yet. I haven't mentioned it yet, and nor have I mentioned Death Warrant, because I haven't seen it in about 20 years, but uh, it'll be a, it'll be on the is, watch list. Is that the one with Patrick Kilpatrick in it? Um, it's the Sandman. Maybe it's the one, the, the prison one. Yeah, I think that's the one with, with Patrick Kilpatrick. Yeah, it has got Patrick Kilpatrick in it, yeah. He's a, he's he's kind of like a, a, a Brian Thompson character in that, you know, where he's like... Um, spitting when he talks and they've modulated his voice which is kind of deeper and a bit weirder this is quite cool it's almost like it feels like an action horror almost a little bit that one yeah it's it's written by david s goyer we've heard of him we've he heard is that. the blade guy and the dark i'd eat he, he wrote part of the dark knight trilogy but i mean he's obviously done things 
since. Yeah. He's done some bad things and some good. He did Arcade yeah, for stuff. Yeah. Wow. And that was the Albert Pium film. He wrote Arcade. We both saw that. <sighs> and the, and the Crow. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, um, so Kickboxer is distinctly mid-tier Jean-Claude. I watched a few things that were on the Savalas. Um I think this is this isn't this is one of this was on Netflix. I watched have you seen this Sly? The documentary yes. about Sylvester Stallone Oh we can both talk about this then, which is quite cool. So this is this is a documentary about Sylvester Stallone. And I I found this to be really a really cursory one dimensional look at his career. That mm-hmm. I, I was I watched it with Faye and when it started it came up and it was him going, oh yeah, I'm gonna move east and uh, I'm gonna have more surgery. <laughs> and and then it came up, executive producer Sylvester Stallone, and I thought, yeah, I can see where the problem's gonna be here because he is like, he's a really sort of self-mythologizing character, isn't he? And he's really, he's really sentimental about like, it's like he's. <sighs> just completely transfixed with his own success story uh yeah so i i i i enjoy I, they didn't mention they like once i was watching this and, and i was just i didn't know what to expect but it would just felt like a a kind of self-help film for idiots That's yeah it was i think because I watched it so soon after the Arnie documentary, which is generally quite interesting. And I, I did it the other way around. That's right. Yeah. Okay. With, yes, with Sly, I think the problem is, is that it's like structured like the Rocky story. And I think it's quite deliberately done that way. Yeah. It's like this kind of rags to riches type thing, but like making out like it's some sort of unmitigated success story. It's like, well, You've skipped over some details, haven't you, about your extramarital affairs, haven't you? But, you know, so it wasn't really warts and all. It's, yeah, I know what you mean. It's very much self-mythologizing. And I think the reason why he's not as appealing a character as, say, Arnie is that Arnie is basically unapologetic about everything. And that makes him quite, like, fun to be around. It's not fun to be around Sly Sloan. He he is apologetic in a way, isn't he? He's very a bit of a sad sack. Yeah, and, and I think that it sort of made out that you know it was like he did the the way the film was structured. If you didn't, if you weren't aware of his his canon of films, you'd think he did Rocky, then mm. he did a couple of Deads, then he did Rambo, and then he did a couple of Deads, then he did Expendables. You know what I mean? And it's not like the vast majority, like most of his more the films I enjoy of his are ones that like are more independent. You know, like. It, like I really enjoyed Copland. That was crossover. Daylight. I, I, it's one of my favorite disaster films. At least that they did mention Copland, and and uh, that was nice because you know it's something I could say. Oh yeah, we should watch that to my wife, sort of thing. Because yeah, I didn't mention the Specialist. I don't think. So. Oh, uh, well, yeah, or, or um, Assassins. Oh, well, did <laughs> mention Demolition? Oh, I Man. see you. No, it did mention Demolition Man. Wow. Um, and it didn't. And it did mention Bullet in the Head, one of the most racist films I've ever seen, which is bizarre. Um, but, but according yeah. to Rakuten, an all-time classic. <laughs> Rakuten, the worst streaming service. <laughs> I, I think, I think my problem is with with like 
Sylvester Stallone, for example, I would love it if he just sat down and they asked him about those films. What are your memories of Demolition Man? What are your memories of, you know, the films that didn't, that were kind of middling, that didn't, yeah. but are the ones that are oddly rewatchable. But what, what do you, how did you find making daylight? What, you know, I, I'd rather that than this, like, like you said, this rags to riches, really sort of glossy. Look, he talks about his dad because he can, he can pull stuff from his dad. Oh, dad used to beat us up. Dad's a piece of shit. Oh God, you know, my dad, I, I've, uh, because of my dad, I'll never ride a horse again. I've never ridden a horse. My dad's great. It doesn't matter, is it? But <laughs> with um, with with this, I just think you didn't mention your mother once, who clearly seems to be, from my understanding, like a much more constant presence, presence yeah. in your life. But because you can't milk her for anything, then you just like yeah. also, even her doesn't fit the the narrative victim narrative. Yeah. So yeah, it just felt really engineered, and and I felt that, and we've talked about this before. I felt oh, it's very clear that it I it was like he was trying to p- manipulate me into feeling a yeah. certain way, and I thought no. Um, and also I, I and I got this feeling. I'm getting the same feeling as well from a book I'm reading about the, uh, the screaming trees at the moment. Is he seems, and I don't. Maybe he's, maybe he's written and directed more well-received fear than i'm aware of but he seems to really be riding the fact that he kind of wrote rocky and to me it seems like he's not he doesn't strike me as a i know him more as an actor and i i don't he seems to see himself as this misunderstood great writer director and i will talk about that more in in a few moments when i talk about fucking paradise alley um (laughs) so which is which is the film that Faye said, because she thought, because of course it shows a bit of Paradise Alley in there. He makes out like, oh, you know, a bit ahead of his time, misunderstood, oh, but it was amazing, really. Mm-hmm. And then Faye was like, oh, it's a Sylvester Sloan film neither of us have seen about wrestling, so let's watch it. And we did, and I'll talk about that in a bit. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I just thought, no, I, I, I didn't, I didn't buy it. I can imagine there are some people out there who maybe will get something from this, and it, and maybe it will give them that kick and, and they will give them self-belief and they will go on to do great things. And I wish them nothing but the best, but I really, I didn't get that from it at all. Yeah. I suppose in both his and Arnie's cases, I mean, it's, they're quite carefully constructed, but at the end of the day, like I'd rather have Arnie's positive, proactive, get off your ass message than can we can we talk about that next because it leads on quite well yeah sure, sure, sure. um yeah before we move on from this though did you know why he was moving east why he was getting up and moving from cal i didn't understand he just said oh you know every 20 years you've got to change and i thought yeah but why are you moving though what, what why are you moving somewhere slightly colder i don't understand why and he never and i and it was like a, it kind of bookended it the best part about this documentary was at the end when it played coming up to the house by tom waits one of my all-time favorite songs yeah that was the best part of the documentary. Um, so, yeah, well, I've talked a lot about that one. So do you want to take the lead on um, Arnold? Yeah, it's been a while since I watched it. But, yes, I, okay. I, I'm i not sure what else to say about it, really. This is a multi-parter, though, isn't it? Yes, it's yeah. It, it covers like, the bodybuilding era, his acting era, then the sort of governor era. And actually, it goes through in quite a lot of detail, his, pretty much his whole career, doesn't it? And I think what stuck out for me is that he's so like he's he hasn't changed essentially <laughs> between like he because he tells a story quite early on in it which um is 
basically where he goes into this is one of his first meetings with a producer it's on, it's on conan i think so uh, I, I guess john millius wanted him to be conan because he was perfect for the role or whatever he had the look and he and he goes into this producer meeting um uh, basically the guy who's going to put the money up for the film and the meeting lasts like a minute and a half it's like the shortest ever meeting with the producer and he says something along the lines of like oh, why does such a little man need such a big desk or something like that and yeah it's Dino De Laurentiis oh right yeah yeah that, yeah that makes sense so he would have been a real power player at the time and of course Dino just kicks him out instantly and says you're gonna you're going nowhere etc but of course Arnie ends up back on the set and and Dino visits the set and watches Arnie like doing his own stunts and like falling down a hill and shit like that and he goes up to him and he just says yeah you you are Conan and it's like I don't know it kind of exemplifies Arnie's self-belief which has always been there from the start mm. um which is kind of quite an attractive quality it's almost like he's not saying oh you know I came from nothing and I built myself up against the odds he's he's saying i came here and i intended to become a multi-millionaire movie star and that's exactly what i did through pure yeah. perseverance and self-belief i think I arnie, arnie is my when, when you when people you you read about you know sort of like the old you know i, I don't tend to watch films say pre-1970 it just for no real reason i just don't tend to gravitate towards them and when people talk about like the real like archetypes like the the, the john waynes and so on mm. I, I think i think when arnie finally shuffles off his mortal coil if he ever does i i think he will be the one that i think god he was like a real constant in my life like he was in so yes. many different films and was such a like a larger than life character even more so than like you know bruce willis and sly and all the others he, he's just such a like he is almost like a mythological being because his life is ridiculous. What he has achieved is. is preposterous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, well, yeah. When you think about where he came from and that first role in like Hercules in New York, uh, and first then, and best, and ends up being, and then ends up actually literally the governor of California. That's just crazy. <laughs> and like a legitimate politician. That's just insane. Yeah. And now you know, in his old age, he's not like embittered he's just like really positive still and he, so yeah, the I, point is he hasn't he's never really changed and i think there's a sort of well whether you like him or not there is an authenticity to that he, he i don't um, believe that he'd be any different if you actually met him in real life i think he'd probably have some like like self-help advice for you well you i, I think an airport he, he um one of the things i liked was um because when Faye was watching this with me, she was she was enjoying it so much that she just said, oh, I've just bought his book. I just went online and bought a hardback of his new book. I don't care. Because um, it's called like, it's, it's in the flat with me at the moment, but I can't see it. Um, his new book is called something like Seven Points to Live By or Seven Things to Improve Your Life or whatever. And he was on Mark Marin a few months ago and I was listening to him. And, and, and Mark Marin said to him, um, I've got to ask, like, your book, why is it seven points why isn't that like 10 points and Ali said well originally it was 20 points but the publisher said that because of the page count if we put any more in than seven more than mm. 268 pages or whatever he said it would it would they'd have to raise the price of the book and he said i wanted the 
book to be cheap because the people who I think are going to want to read this and it will help won't have the money to buy an expensive book. So I want to keep it as cheap as possible so as many people as possible can read it. And I just thought that's such a nice little gesture. Um, yeah, so I, I just like Arnie, basically. I just think he's obviously he's a very flawed man, but he's so entertaining. <laughs> and so, like you say, so just completely full of self-belief that it, that is kind of it. It, it is um, seductive. You do, Yes, you do kind of feel a little bit like, oh, fair play, you know, you, you've done well, and uh, I hope, and you want to pass that on to others. Good, you know, he could be doing so many other things at this point in his life, and he's still kind of engaged, like with his, you know, with the Special Olympics. And when we talked about this a few weeks ago, you mentioned the um, the guy that kicked him in the back. Oh, yeah, that ridiculous footage of like someone just went up behind, ran up to him, double double footed lunge, and kicked him in the back. I mean, he stumbled a bit, but he stayed on his feet. But his response was basically like, I just feel sorry for the guy and I hope he gets the help he needs sort of thing. But and then he instantly just like shifted and and, and said, but let's forget about that. Let's, you know, focus on why I was there to like, you know, raise the profile of this gym and stuff like that. So, yes. Yeah. Better than Sly. Um, <laughs> better. Is, 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 yes. Better so. So, so yeah, that's that's yeah, that's how I would yeah. They make a good they make a good double header though, but I would watch the sly one first, and then you'll see a good one then. <laughs> you can guarantee see one good documentary. Um, <laughs> right, well, they're both on Netflix, I think. So yes, but watch the only one first. I watched a film on Prime called Someone to Watch Over Me. This was a film that Ridley Scott made in 1987 between well legend and black rain uh it stars stars tom berenger uh who plays this blue collar new york cop from queens and he's quite happy with his wife played by lorraine bracco uh and he's got a son as well and then this wealthy woman uh played by mimi rogers uh witnesses a murder and uh tom berenger is tasked with protecting her as the key witness um and he is seduced by her glamorous lifestyle and he ends up falling for her um all while she's under direct threat from the suspect she's meant to identify of course um and then the bad guy starts threatening not just her but also tom berenger's family and things get really messy uh this is a film that has style, obviously, because it's Ridley Scott, but the substance itself is pretty trashy and absurd. Uh, and also, just I, I really noticed this, just like in Blade Runner, right? Also a Ridley Scott film. The main character is quite rubbish at his job, uh, like noticeably crap. It, he fails to protect the witness um, in one quite early scene and then messes up the arrest when he finally like, comes onto it. Which leads to the suspect literally going free because he doesn't arrest him properly. He completely fouls it up. And even in the final encounter with the bad guy, he's relying on other people to fix a mess of his own making. (laughs) There's something missing in this and Blade Runner to show, you know, like a movie will introduce a badass character by having them do something badass to show yeah. like right this is what they're capable of you know this. he is yeah he is capable yeah but they just neither film has that so it's just he's just a bit crap i'm not sure that tom berenger is right for the role either because the character is ostensibly a a kind-hearted brute really 
kind of reminiscent of Rocky, actually. And I, it made me think, I wonder if Sylvester Stallone at that time might have actually been a better fit for the role, because I think Tom Berenger's, something about Tom Berenger's eyes, they're a bit more wise. Um, <laughs> whereas with someone like Stallone, he's got that kind of sadness and he's got that brutishness. I think actually could have worked quite well. Anyway, so... Yes, this character's main character, he's a real sad sack and he's not much fun to be around. And actually, the two main characters, as in him and Mimi Rogers, are the least sympathetic of of all. Like, he basically cheats on his wife and she cheats on her boyfriend, despite both of them having perfectly decent lives. And it's like, and also, would a poor person get this level of protection? I'm not sure. It all seems a bit fishy. I, I think Mimi Rogers is really good. But there's very little chemistry between her and Tom Berenger, which is really undermines the movie because the whole idea is is that like their kind of desire for each other is too strong to deny. So you kind of you can sympathise with them, but it's like, well, no, actually, you got more chemistry with your own wife, mate. So um, yeah, no one's motivations make any sense really least of all the main bad guy because he starts off as this like ruthlessly efficient mobster and just ends up as this completely psychopathic kidnapper and would be murderer and it's like if that's who you are if you are this psychopathic murderer why not just why didn't you take one of your many opportunities to kill the witness previously you seem very calculating and careful before but now suddenly you're a total psycho so anyway yeah so there's this early scene where he he basically hands himself over to the cops right and you're thinking you know in a kind of style of like kevin spacey in seven or, or joker um but then so he's handing himself to the cops so you're thinking there's going to be some you know trick to this but no he only actually escapes custody through sheer luck it's like it's just through um tom berenger fouling up the arrest and not reading him his rights so anyway it all adds up to this sense that um, this bad guy character is really just playing a part in the theatre of the lovers at the centre of the story because his actions only seem to serve their narrative and not his own interests, you see what I mean? So he... really, yes, it's a completely absurd film which doesn't make any sense and it's very flashily made, beautifully lit um, as you'd expect from Ridley Scott but it has this trashy sensibility and a total paucity of internal logic. It's not unenjoyable. But it did he is. miss a did he miss a trick, um, Tom Major in this film? Like when when his commanding officer said to him, Did you read him his rights? Didn't he think to say yes? Because there's no there's no way of proving anything, surely. No, it does feel like a mechanic. It almost feels like they're trying to write themselves out of it's, you know, like if you're writing a script, you'd be thinking, oh, here's a good moment for a twist. He's going to hand himself into the cops, but then you can't think of a reason why he did it. So then you're like, oh, let's just let's just write our way out of this. Oh, you what, didn't read his rights. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. What was that, what's that film? I think it's a 90s action film where it's obviously it's based on a cop and, the, and he arrests someone. And as he's like got him on the floor and he's cuffing him, he's reading in the Miranda rights, but he says something like, and if you, he starts saying it properly, and then he says, um, you have the right to attorney. If, if you cannot afford one, we will get the dumbest son of a bitch in New York. <laughs> <laughs> or like that yeah, yeah I remember that. But I, I, think it's, yeah. I bet it's got to be a lethal weapon film. Surely. 
We're going to get the dumbest son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> the Cockeyed Attorney. That was probably one of my favourite Nick Nolte films, to be honest. Um, so, someone to watch over me is on Prime if you really want to finish your Ridley Scott saga. <laughs> well, Ridley Scott, is he, is, we talk about earlier on... Um, well, he's looking good for his age, though, Ridley Scott. Fair play. Um, mm. With... John Carpenter, mm. it's feasible that you'd want to go through his whole back catalogue. Is it the same for Ridley Scott, do you think, or was there too much? I don't know about that. Yeah, there's too, there's too many middling films in there. Like, I know what you mean about, you look at John Carpenter's back catalogue, and it's like... It feels quite taut. This, yeah, there's like colour in everyone, isn't there? Yeah. There's like, and he does shift genres quite a lot, and it's like... Yeah, and they're different style. I mean, he would have absolutely dead serious movies, and then he'll slip into like just bawdy comedy, and I, I like, and that's cool. Ridley Scott, I don't know, he's made too many middling films, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know, but he's very talented. Shit. He's making Gladiator too. Yes. Oof. Yes, he is. Oh, did that need returning to Matt Lucas is in it? That's what? me out. That is that's me out. Was he going to take the Oliver Reed role? <laughs> I think he's going to take the um, main role actually. <laughs> Matt Lucas is a gladiator. That'd be amazing. I would watch that. <laughs> his helmet would slip off his head. Um, well, now back to me then, so I can finally talk about Paradise Alley. Um, have you seen this? No. Fuck me. Um, so this, this was, was mentioned f- in the documentary, though, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and again, oh, if you watch, he he mentions it as if like ah, you know, I made Paradise Alley. It's a bit misunderstood, you know. It's this kind of like zany kind of fast talking comedy, uh, and he said a lot of things about it. What he didn't say was what I thought, which was that it was shit. Oh. That's the one thing he did gloss over, um, even though it's got Dory Funk Jr. and Terry Funk in it. Um, <clears throat> so. Yeah, a bit of context for this. This is this is nineteen seventy eight. So he did Rocky, and then yeah. and, and and when they said this in the documentary, I thought yes. Um, but this was the one that Faye said we'll have to get that. So she bought the limited edition Blu-ray to watch. Oh, I bet oh she's glad she goodness. did that. Yeah, it wasn't a German import, so you won't care about it. But <laughs> <coughs> sorry, yeah. Um, so he he said Rocky was a big hit. So I dug out one of my old scripts. And I thought, oh, that always—that's always a good move. Yeah. You dig out one that was like led up to it, like a proto version <laughs> of like. A, so, this film is not good. It is not good. It's, it's set in this place called uh, uh, Paradise Alley. It's in Hell's Kitchen in the 1940s, and it's three brothers. It's uh, Sylvester Sloan, Amanda Sante, and another guy who I forget. Tom Waits, Tom Waits is in it for about the same length of time that we are. Oh, Lee Canalito was an actual a professional boxer, plays like his kind of young, big hulking, kind of like the Lenny character, like a gentle giant sort of thing. Um, mm. And uh, Cosmo is uh, Sylvester Sloan's character. He's kind of a street huckster, like a fast talking and irritatingly fast talking street huckster. Who kind of, and it's all, it is really all set around one street now that I think about it. It feels really sort of low key, almost like a theater piece. Um, uh, he's got his brother Victor, who's this big sort of bulky guy who delivers ice from door to door. Uh, the gentle giant wants to marry his, his uh, 
Asian girlfriend and Lenny is Cosmo's brother who went to the war. Amanda Santi came back with a bullet wound. He walks with a limp and he works as a kind of embalmer. I, I guess like a like mm-hmm. a like, like a 1940s kind of um, not an undertaker. What's it called? Like a the people who do the sort of war top please and stuff. Anyway, he's not happy. A coroner. Not no, is that a, a coroner? Yeah, kind of a coroner character. Yeah. He's not. He's not happy with his lot, and he kind of obviously is just. Um, just sort of embittered by the war. Um, and it starts off, and I think, I think that Sylvester Stallone in, envisaged his character Cosmo as a kind of misunderstood, like, he's, yes, he's fast talking and he's kind of, he's, he's always really positive, but he's actually got nothing. And, and he envisages him as this kind of underdog. And the, the plot of the story for the first, I would say, 45 minutes is really ambling. Uh, and it's lots of really fast, badly edited dialogue. Uh, badly edited to the point that, like, it'll 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 cut to two people talking and cut back and there'll just be another person in the scene talking with them that wasn't there a minute ago. It's like, mm-hmm. what? Um, and Tom Waits turns up just smoking fags in the background. Yeah. Um, and his hair is not carefully brushed let me tell you that um (laughs) and yeah he's got this kind of italian wise guy thing going on but his character sylvester's character cosmo is just constantly talking and it and he he just serves to either be like really irritating because there's no gap in the dialogue or he just is putting himself in these ridiculous situations and getting his brothers to sort of get him out of them and the film the the path the film goes on is eventually they come across this this place called paradise alley where they do sort of um bare knuckle wrestling matches and his brother beats the champion and the the, the brothers kind of switch allegiances so where is cosmos the fast talking huckster who's like oh let's just make bit of money off our brother and kind of you know he obviously loves him but he's just basically using him to make money and amanda sandy doesn't want to do it then amanda sandy gets sort of infatuated with this this money-driven lifestyle while sylvester was like oh actually our brother's getting really hurt can we can we stop this and it's just really unbelievable genuinely unbelievable in the way that they within, within like a scene they will just completely flip and they, they both got completely opposing viewpoints whereas up until then they were completely on board with it so that was that was just really poorly executed and also obviously just as not a side note but they, i feel like they should have made it about boxing because wrestling is and always has been a choreographed form of entertainment so wouldn't that literally have just been rocky then though yeah well that's probably why they changed it because it doesn't uh, make sense because wrestling is has always been pro wrestling has always been staged so you yeah, know, yes so they do, and it's not like they're standing there like really slugging it out and just taking each other to the floor and like amateur like messy wrestling. It's but it's like jumping off the top rope to an elbow drops and back drops. You know, like that. That's, well, that's not how people fight wrestling, then, isn't it? Yes. So it, that works again against the fact that this is supposed to be this really earthy story. Like what? It's clearly just two people working in tandem with each other, <laughs> like throwing each other off the ropes. Cool, so every aspect of the film is is just tedious, and I, I, I'm not even going to go into the romantic subplots because it's it it's it's literally to the level of like he'll see someone sleeping with his brother and he'll be like what did you do there i thought you loved me and she's like, what do you mean i thought you and i was the thing we ain't no thing and it just goes on for minutes oh, and, and like you think oh this is just people fucking whining and smoking um I don't know, i've met my parents before um so so yeah this was it, and it feels so messy and kind of carny just mm. 
and this this will never ever get a reprisal. Well, I'm reprising it now. I've never seen it before. I'm watching it now. I was in the mood. I like Stallone in some stuff, but bloody hell, this is awful. It's probably one of the worst films he's ever been in. Like even worse than I See You, because at least that was stupid cheesy thriller fun. But this is poorly edited. The music's irritating. The plot makes no sense. People are miscast. He doesn't shut his barking mouth. So yeah, just really, really, really bad film. So I'm presuming. Now, this is to guess based on what we've talked about already and what we're now talking about and what was included in the slide documentary, right? I th- wonder if the reason why so many things were just left out of the slide documentary and so many weird things were included, including this steaming turd. Oh. The reason being is that because the stuff that was kept in was almost like stuff that either he's created as a, as a writer or director or he's basically had produced or had some part of the um, creative inception of um, and anything where it was just like he was just an actor or whatever, like Demolition Man or yeah. Daylight. Daylight. Yeah. Something like that, even though they might be like better films, they weren't included because they didn't. They, again, they didn't fit into his narrative of this like street rat done good type thing. Because yeah. I remember him going on about this film in that documentary, <laughs> like it's some undiscovered gem. It's not. It, sounds, it just sounds like a, a shit, like Rocky knockoff. Yeah, it, it's like he's made, it's like he thought, well, there's going to be a lot of like Rocky knockoffs. I'll just make one. So at least I get it. But it's it, it's so misguided on every, like every, it, oh, it's just crap. It's really boring. Like a mm. lot happens and it's very fast paced. It's so boring. It's just constant talking. Um. So, yeah, I know. Okay, no, no. see, this was a purchase. This was a Blu-ray limited edition picture that I didn't want to pay for. That Faye, on the strength of thinking, enjoying the slide documentary and saying, oh. She was genuinely manipulated by um, the documentary. Well, it's available for paid rental on the various stores, I guess, if anyone really wants to watch it. Okay. Um, I watched another film on Prime called Stay Tuned, which no one's ever heard of. But here it is. It's a 1992 comedy fantasy satire flop starring John Ritter. And he plays a kind of um, a father on an idyllic estate, but he's a real man child and he's obsessed with watching TV. He's a klutz and he's basically neglecting his wife and family because he's just absolutely addicted to watching TV. Anyway, one night he's visited my mysterious stranger who offers him a free trial of a magical TV adventure. What's actually happening is he's going to erect like a um, massive like dish, like sky dish in his yard. And what it does, is it sucks people into this TV world where they take part in various TV shows on different channels. Um, and in every and if they lose whatever challenge there is on that channel, uh and they'll die and they've got to survive 24 hours and then they can come back to you know the real world so yes so john ritter and his wife end up in this so-called hell vision and 
and and they're thrown straight into like a wrestling match and then they're thrown into like an alaskan survival show then they're in a cartoon etc you see where it's going so uh meanwhile the kids at home are actually watching their parents on the tv sort of thing through all these channels tim burton was going to direct this originally but thankfully he went and did batman returns instead so (laughs) the script isn't funny and it fails to settle on a tone because ostensibly this is a family comedy, but it's it's too harsh and perilous for kids because the people in the show are genuinely just dying. <laughs> Satirical comedy is too basic and juvenile for adults, so I don't really know what it's going for. I will say there's something briefly nostalgic about these sorts of films which satirise the nation's obsession with linear television. But then nostalgia swiftly swept aside, uh, giving way to a kind of sense of it just being hopelessly dated. Uh, John Ritter was a fairly expressive comic actor and he does have some good timing, but he died in his 50s from sudden heart failure, which is pretty brutal. Um, Oh, it also features the now disgraced Jeffrey Jones, which perhaps is another link to Tim Burton. Whoopsie daisy. Yeah. There are some bits of this film I quite liked. I liked the like faux trailers they have on the TV. Like uh, it keeps cutting back to these amusing trailers, almost like Verhoeven style trailers, but they're quite creative. There's like there's one like for a show called Three Men and Rosemary's Baby where you've got like these three guys just cooing over this demonic child in a cot. That was good. And there's one there's one called different strokes and it's literally just two old dudes having different stroke symptoms <laughs> that was quite yeah. funny. But <laughs> obviously completely unsuitable for family comedy but i found them amusing there is like some variety to the kind of channels they enter into like there's a wayne's world parody which just goes on too long but then he then it's like followed by a, like a film noir thriller type thing but what you gain in variety is at the expense of actual jokes or character development so it's kind of like the ending of Shocker stretched out to 90 minutes and it's not enough to sustain it because the script is a load of wank. So stay tuned. Tune Sorry. out, I say. So I'm just, I'm maybe just a load <laughs> of wank. Right. Written that. More notes from uh, Rupert's index in-depth film criticisms. Um, I've got two. How many have you got left? I have one. I got two. Well, it's one and a half, really. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk about this one next. I don't know if you've seen this. Leave the World Behind with Ethan Hawke. Yes. You've seen it? Yes. Is this your next film? No. It's I. I it's too... I, I, I was going to include it on my next... Oh, should we talk one. about it next? We'll, okay, we'll talk about that next time, then. I'm happy to do yeah. that. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm intrigued to yeah see what you think. Um. Okay, yes. the, I, I'm going to end mine then on a, on a halfy because we went out New Year's Eve. Uh, um, my parents had our son. We had a free reign. We had an awesome evening, beautiful meal, and came back. Faye clocked out at like one o'clock, and I thought, well, what better way to celebrate 10,000 downloads of our beautiful podcast, Kino Kingdom, with my good friend Rupert, than to sit down an hour into 2024 and celebrate it with a film. And the film I chose, (laughs) 
was Dangerous Game the Legacy Murders starring John Voight and Jonathan Rhys Myers. <laughs> we... <laughs> and I was, sit- I was sitting there and I was I, I was really drunk. So I made myself like a bizarre meal. I had a big glass of wine and I was sitting there battered. And I made like mash, cheese and beans or something. And I was sitting there just drunk and thinking, well, I'll probably watch this now. And John Voight and Jonathan Rhys Myers, the two Johns, such an appealing pair. And I, this was this is from 2022, and it is on, it was on Netflix, and it was it was it was popped up like, oh, Brit, you're going to want to watch this. And the, the last few that popped up on Netflix for me right have been, The Killer, Sly, Arnold, um. Leave the world behind, which we'll talk about next time. And this, and I thought, well, you know, it's been on a pretty good run. No, that run ended. That run ended. This film, it just, it's like it was genetically modified to piss me off. And it was something about all of the characters and their fucking smugness. It started, it's like a really glossy, the, the cover of it, if you type in um, Dangerous Game, The Legacy Murders, if you can remember all those words in that order, um, into IMDb, the poster that comes up with the cast reflected in a knife just looks like some awful late 90s straight to DVD knockoff. And it, it's this, it's John Voight is this sort of um, patriarch of this family on this like island estate. And everyone turns up and they're all smug, they're all conniving, and they're all sniping at each other, irritating yes. They all seem to basically be the same character. And this was very clearly trying to get the kind of knives out thing, but with removing the kind of it's more of like an Agatha Christie thing. Like they're all right. getting killed off and like, oh, who done it sort of thing on this this remote island. And I thought, that is perfect nineties thriller foil, isn't it? In 2022, not so much. And uh, Jonathan Rhys Myers turns up with like some bimbo, and he and the, there's uh, he kind of hints that he has well, not hints, he alludes to the fact that he has um, taken his father's business from under him. But his father, kind of who's a who's a wheelchair ridden John Voight, is kind of snarkily proud of him because you know he's such a he's so evil that he would have done the same thing if he could. He's proud from how underhand his son could be, and then. And it was getting on my nerves. Everyone in the film was getting on my nerves. And the soundtrack was getting on my nerves. And the dialogue was getting on my nerves. And about 25 minutes in, it hit a point where I thought, I don't know if I can watch this. I can't watch it now. I can't let this be the first film of the year for me. Um, the, they're in this, they're all, they all basically argue until they all separate and go to bed, right? And in the middle of the night, in this big secluded rural mansion, all of these steels, there's like a thunderstorm. And all of the steel shutters slam over the windows, kind of like um, the House of Haunted Hill or whatever. And within four seconds, they're all, they all run out of the rooms and they're all just running around the living room. And they're all going, what the fuck is going on? Who the fuck did this? Fuck you. You fucking did this. And then what the right. fuck is going on? And, what? and they're all just swearing at each other. And I thought, right, I'm turning this off. Because what would happen then if I was, if I lived and my father was an alien billionaire, right, on his private island. And there was a thunderstorm, and then all of the something happened, and all of the security set a sound slammed shut in like a protection thing. What I would do is go into my dad's room and say, oh, "I think something's shorted because <laughs> the security features have been. How, how do we kind of reverse them?" But instead, they all just start swearing at each other, and you're like, uh, That's, "That is not right." That is. And that it was so contrived, it was such forced drama that it just made me turn it off. And I just sat there in darkness, eating my cheese and mash until I went to bed. Um, 
so I probably will watch this because it was really winding me up, and I and, I, and I'd like to know how it pans out. Um, but yeah, it, it seemed absolutely bloody dreadful, to be honest. Really unpleasant. <laughs> Excellent. Um, much like John Voight's politics. Um, right. Okay. <laughs> um, right. I won't. I probably won't watch that. What was it called again? Imagine if um, if I just you saying much like John Voight's politics. It just reminds me. I was reading a that was on Prime. Uh, sorry, on um, Netflix. I was uh, watching because I realised the O.J. Simpson is obviously such a sort of uh, landmark case, and I realised I'd never really understood what was going on. So I watched a documentary about it, and um, and and it, it was like playing tapes on this documentary from the interview. Obviously, slightly grainy cassette recordings of. Yeah. Of, uh, of of OJ Simpson and I was just thinking of what like you know they they sit there and they press record and play on their tape deck on their on their ferret tape and imagine when they, the police got Jeffrey Jones in uh, when they called him in and they said we're just going to ask you some questions and then they press record and play and it would be like hissy kind of and then the um, detective the lead detective would say it's uh, five twelve p.m. and I'm here with the actor Jeffrey Jones. And uh, Jeffrey, we've been through your internet search history <laughs> on AOL.com. Using cognito mode. <laughs> you silly William. Yeah. So, yeah, but um, they didn't sing in the OJ Simpson. Um, no one sang. And there was no singing in that documentary. No one sang at the trial. No one sang. Just waiting for them to break out in a song, really. Isn't isn't Come on, someone's got to burst into something at the moment, even if it's flames. So, yes, dangerous game, the legacy murders, shit, and um, <laughs> leave the world behind. We'll talk about next time, although I'm very yes. keen to do so. So, okay, that is me done, my sweet, sweet lover. It's on to you for the last one. Uh, I will talk about a documentary on Netflix uh, called Sherpa, which is from 2015. And this was a documentary that was originally intended just to show the lives of Sherpas in the Himalayas, the guys who basically help rich Westerners up Mount Everest. Yeah, I was going to say, are they like mountain guides or something like that? Yeah. yeah. Um, but actually it ended up documenting the worst disaster in the history of Everest, in Woo-hoo! which 16 Sherpas were killed in a single icefall. So, Jesus. And the, so the film shows how being a Sherpa is a way of life for them, uh, like and a very dangerous and underpaid one given the amounts of money that wealthy foreigners hand over it focuses on on um a guy called uh perber of berber who is about to claim the record for like climbing everest them uh, like the greatest amount of times and and then you've got uh sort of representing the wealthy westerners a guy called russell bryce who owns a company that runs these Everest climbs. So through these two, you get lots of conflicts and contrasts highlighted. You get like the whole foreigners versus locals, money versus safety, technology versus tradition, that sort of thing. Also risk versus compensation, because there's a lot of anger at the inept uh, Nepalese government who basically do nothing in response to the Sherpa's request for more money money to support their families um, after someone dies. But which is oh, so, so it's, a, it's a government run thing so the government well the government hire, hire the sherpas and the sherpas do this incredible so they're not like well contractors the, where they get paid a good no they it, they get paid 
this private by the private companies but what's it's like um kind of social welfare i suppose so basically they get if someone die, if because obviously it's, it's almost entirely men as, who are sherpas if they die and obviously they leave their family behind then there's no support for the family that's left behind so it's right okay. extraordinarily risky and um so there's that whole part of it but the russell bryce thing is interesting because he is a businessman who, who sort of purports to care about the sherpas and their way of life and stuff but he is livid after this disaster because of course the sherpas get together and they say well to hell with this we're just going to cancel all the climbs for the summer but russell bryce is like ah, oh, no no they can't do that you know i've got i've got clients to think about and all this kind of stuff and he starts like coming out with like all this bullshit about like uh like how there are certain dominant sherpas who are bullying the others like some sort of corrupt union from the 1930s and the documentary shows this is not true uh but it's just it's astonishingly like brazen like how much he's just unwilling to accept that these sherpas want to actually just like stick together and not not climb after like 16 of their like kin have just died so Anyway, so you get a lot of dramatic footage because obviously the cameras are right there as the kind of emotional fallout happens. Uh, and they're even there when the government visit um, to basically say nothing and just not help them at all. Uh, so it is quite a scandalous situation. Um, I think things have changed now. It does say at the end that actually the government has now started paying out welfare to these families. But um, it is quite shocking. And it's a well-made documentary it does have a slightly fetishized view of sherpa life there's a lot of whiny violin music with prayers and joysticks um so there's a bit of that it's not really a climbing documentary to be honest it's more like a political kind of thing um and ultimately it's just another reason not to climb mount everest it's expensive it's deadly and on top of that the locals just don't want you there anyway um, <laughs> There you go. So in case you were thinking, oh, you know, maybe I'll pop over there. Just remember that they don't want you there. <laughs> when you go there, just remember that you're not needed or wanted. Yeah, OK. Wanted at all. I, but it would genuinely make me feel a bit weird. Like, I suppose if you're extremely wealthy, you might not care so much. But I don't know. You go over there and you basically these Sherpas will. What they're there for is to be pack mules essentially for wealthy foreigners to go up these and so they'll 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 go ahead like early morning to carry like just hundreds of kilograms of equipment up like the ice flow um at night because they have to travel at night because that's when it's coldest so less chance of avalanches so yeah and then of course the the people who paid 75 grand or whatever to be there or just rock up <laughs> with their gym shoes on the next day so it's quite an uh yeah it's quite an eye-opening documentary it's called yeah, i can imagine this because i i just assume that like these you know i mean <laughs> my knowledge of the world of mountaineering is scant but i just think that growing up as i did in holland but i, I just think that you it, yeah, it just—I can imagine it. Just, is it like a Chris McCandless situation where 
it's this like romanticized thing when actually not so much Chris McCandless, but it's like a romanticized thing. But actually, it's just it's just really cynical when, at the heart of it. Where uh, yes, well, to an extent, although I mean, the people obviously the people who are climbing Everest, like even the like wealthy foreigners, they're not just dumb asses who've never climbed before. I mean, they are professional mountaineers and stuff. So there's that, but it's just this kind of like folk spiritualism that they uh, they should they you know come out come over and say oh they're such a such beautiful people and so gentle and peaceful and it's like well but they are also like human beings with actual lives they're not just gentle spiritual people they're actually people who need money and food to survive so like yes, everyone yes almost like mm. yes like everyone yeah there's a bit of that mythologizing going on and it's not that helpful when it comes to pension payments um anyway what yes what what is it with you and documentaries about heights and mountaineering i love mountaineering documentaries uh is it because of the visuals yeah the visuals and the ridiculous uh, yeah the the just the danger of it and like the horror of it but also just how difficult it is and how impressive the people are who who do it like free solo and is it called 13 peaks are two of my favorites they need to be watched uh yeah, they're not point, all good it's, some of them are quite tedious is there any um <laughs> any point in the documentary when they it shows people like whipped up in an ice storm as they're like clambering up these freezing slopes of gasping for as the air goes thinner and thinner and then someone holds up their phone and then turns around and says to the Sherpa I'm having a bit of trouble streaming Frasier series 2 through Netflix because it's buffering a lot can you help what? me can you go and hold an aerial up <laughs> what, what, what was, there, was there a scene when um they're outside a tent and again it's like a like a hurricane just blowing around them and someone suggests playing cards and the sherpa says i wouldn't bother playing cards out here in this and they're like oh you're so wise (laughs) (laughs) you really know the mountain don't you (laughs) you understand this part of the world's mythological sense of of the land No, it's just really one, one busted of them, windy. One of, them, one of them like pulls out a box of Jenga, and as he's about to like get the cellophane off the ship, or just looks at him, just gently shakes his head, and he sort of sheepishly puts it back in his satchel. Didn't have to say anything. I just knew from his eyes what he meant. He meant he the, meant, the he Jenga meant, would probably blow over by itself in this weather. <laughs> it'd be really, really difficult to play that here. <laughs> um, right, that is everything I have. Yes, it's almost everything I have, but for the one thing which I have, but I cannot say. So mm-hmm. we're keeping it for next time. Leave the world behind. So it is time to hurtle, hurtle into the Arkansas. So yeah. we've had a few responses as usual. Uh, I'd like to give the first response. Um, it was Michael Fassbender to Eddie Murphy. Um, and my dad had a go at this. He just sort of sat there and closed his eyes in silent prayer, much like a Sherpa, for a few moments. And then and then he opened his eyes and thus spake Michael Fassbender. <laughs> he, he sat there and he closed his eyes and he sort of hummed gently whilst like he had these kind of prayer bowls in his hands and a rosary in the other. And after a few minutes, he said, 
Michael Fassbender was in Assassin's Creed with Jeremy Irons, who was with Steve Martin in Pink Panther 2, and Steve Martin starred with Eddie Murphy in Bowfinger. <laughs> that's a three-stepper, son. So, yes, that's my dad's three-stepper. Ben was keen and said, got one, here come the two-stepper. Yeah. Eddie Murphy was in Boomerang with Halle Berry, who was in X-Men Pick One with Michael Fassbender. That's a good two-stepper. Utah Smith said Michael Fassbender is in Haywire with Antonio Banderas, who is in Shrek with Eddie Murphy. And Max said Eddie Murphy is in the upcoming Beverly Hills Cop film with Kevin Bacon, who is in the X-Men reboot with Michael Fassbender. So a lot of two-steppers this week. Yes. Of which one is not mine. Um that is quite, that's an impressive one of taking a future film. I know that's the first time that yeah. like an unreleased film has been included in the Arkansas. I, I I did this one very hastily. That's my excuse. Um, <sighs> I only got three step. I and I'm not even sure it's right. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I said you're supposed to represent the podcast itself. I know. I'm I'm speaking for the both of us here when I say Eddie Murphy is in Tower Heist with Ben Stiller. He was an anchor man with Seth Rogen, I think, who's in Steve Jobs with Michael Fassbender. Oh, well, well. I think Seth Rogen's an anchor man. <laughs> um, he better be every other. Yes, yes, yes. He's in anchor man too, I think. Um, so, one of the things that was picked up in this is um, Utah said that Haywire is a really good, like, underappreciated film. Is that the uh, one with um, Gina Carano, or are we thinking of a different Haywire? No, 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 that, that's the one. And that's what I was thinking. I remember watching this, and I remember having a problem with the film, but I can't remember what it was. It's not very exciting. Is it? Yeah, is it like her like, slowly clambering on rooftops and stuff? Yeah, it was, because um, it's Steven Soderbergh, isn't it? And the thing about Steven Soderbergh films is they're not, they are not very kinetic feeling, because they're quite... I don't know, there's something so, kind of subdued and atmospheric about Steven Soderbergh. He does certain types of film very well, but high-octane action is not what I think of. I, I think you said it was called Haywire, but it's not Haywire in terms of its pacing. Yes. I, I remember you making that comment. Yeah, yeah. I, may, I might need to rewatch it because, yeah, Gina Cron, I remember it's kind of flooding back a bit now. But um, yes, yes, I do remember having this conversation. Um, so... The audience of one, the listenership of one once again, all yes. 10,000 of them. So you are nothing. You are nothing, Rupert. <laughs> Can you please win next time? If you don't okay. win next time, we're going to end the podcast. Uh, so the Arkansas for next week, then. Right. Now, my choice is either I'm going to say either John Voigt or Jonathan Rhys Myers. <laughs> I'm thinking okay. John Voigt might be a more fun one. Uh, but Jonathan Rhys Myers is doable still. Yeah, but John, John, yeah, like John Voigt, people really get to like drink in his politics as they do the research, and, and yeah, also they, 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 you've got he, he's he's multi generational as well, which makes that's it a little true. bit. So I'll I'll go with my choice is John Voigt. Okay, I'll go. Uh, so I was going to go with Richard E. Grant, but I get the oh, feeling nice. that they have they been in a film together. I don't know. I don't think so. We'll find out because the listeners will tell you if so. They will tell me. I'm going to go with it. I can't think of a film that which features John Voight and Richard E. Grant. So maybe there's a two-stepper, but I can't think of a one-stepper at least. 
well, you can never think of two steppers even when you're trying to do the thing itself. Mm-hmm. It's so bad, right? Please win next time. All right. Fly the flag for God's sake. So uh, yeah, the final part of the podcast. Everyone, thanks you for listening. Thank you for listening. And um, Thank you. It, it's it's just it's the film of the week, Rupert. So what, what's your film of the week? Saltburn. Oof, that was quick. Uh, well, well, my film of the week is. I won't say what I was going to say because it'll give it away. But I think for me, it's the killer. I mean, I'm just looking through yep. mine now. But I think the killer is just a, it's just a, a great great film. Excellent. So, uh, yep, uh, I can. Yep, I can sympathise with that. Good. Right then, I love you. I Do love you love me? I thought I, you did. I, I have loved before. Yeah. But have you loved like this? Not quite, <laughs> but similarly. Uh, and so before we end, Rupert, what's your favourite colour? Um, brown. Hey, it's Tia Career, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys. 